my name is Neil. I'm married to the wonderful, uh, beautiful Kate. We lead this church uh, together. Uh, and over the last few weeks, we've been looking a little bit about um, rhythms of, uh, particularly we've been focusing on the last week, rhythms of silence and solitude. And I want you to try and dig into this a little bit more this morning. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 Kings, and we'll get there at some point. If you don't know where 1 Kings is, uh, have a look at the, the contents and uh, find your way that way. So we were talking about this last week. Has, has anyone managed to get any silence and solitude this week? Yes? How was it? Was it, was it all right? Yeah? Yeah? <laughs> uh, I'm sure for some of you, if you managed to get uh, a little bit of time for silence and solitude, I'm sure for some of you it was the most natural thing in the world, the easiest thing in the world, the most wonderful and precious, delightful thing in the world. Uh, for some of us, we might have tried to get some silence and, and discovered, actually, this is quite hard. You know, I love the idea of this, but actually the reality and the practice of it is it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more challenging. Just taking time to deliberately and intentionally still and quiet our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Just some, taking time to be still and quiet in the presence of the Lord um, can actually be a challenge. It's not necessarily that easy. And as I was spending time this week and encountering some of that challenge, and it may just be me, I started asking myself the question, why is it that sometimes we find it hard just to settle ourselves in some silence and solitude? And I think some of it has to do with what we were talking about last week, uh, about it not just being about how we handle the external noise, you know, the sort of the TV and the wireless and, you know, the, the, the headphones and you know, whatever it is that is kind of bombarding us externally in terms of noise. But, um, but it's sort of to do with how do we still and quiet that kind of the inner noise that we were talking about last week. If you're anything like me, finally, you set aside time to be quiet and to be still and to be alone, just you and God, and you're kind of all set up and you're ready to go and you're really looking forward to this, just this moment, these few minutes of stillness and quiet. And then you sort of settle yourself down and then sort of all of a sudden, um, all of this stuff like starts to kind of bubble up. You know, there's, I might just be me, right? But um I'm going to put it out there. But, like, you know, there's, like, uh, sort of emotions or feelings or thoughts. It's random, random thoughts, all kind of, kind of bombarding and crowding in. And uh, it's almost like there's all this stuff that starts to bubble up in your heart. And you're like, wow, like, who knew that's what I might be feeling? Like, I, I, I didn't think I might be feeling like that. But maybe this is what's actually going on with me. Maybe this is, this is stuff that uh, I need to deal with. And, and it can actually be pretty tricky. Well, if any of that happened to you, any of you this week, um, as it certainly did for me, uh, you're not alone. Um, I may be alone, but um, you're not alone. Uh, the question, I think, is, and this is, again, um, prompted by my own experience this week, is um, how do we work through some of those feelings, some of the anxieties or the fears or the uncertainty or the doubts or the, the anger or the rage or whatever it is that might kind of be bubbling up or can rise to the surface when we take some time in silence and solitude so that we can come through that and out to, this, to the other side into this place of freedom that God is calling us to. And I think this is where the story from um, 1 Kings chapter 19 
can be a little bit helpful for us. It's a pretty good place to start because I think it captures much of what that experience can be like um, and it's sort of in a story form and gives us a little bit of a roadmap as to how we might work through some of this and how we might navigate some of the potentially and sometimes choppy waters of silence and solitude. So if you've got a Bible, 1 Kings chapter 19. Now if, you, if, you've, if you've read um, 1 Kings 18, you're in this is the story of Elijah. I need my glasses now. Uh, Elijah, he's, uh, he's, he's literally, you know, he's a prophet. Um, he's got a pretty ropey job, actually. Um, but he's just had this phenomenal encounter with God and the prophets of Baal, and he's, like, sorted them all out. And it's literally, like, the high point of his career, you know? He's, it's just been amazing, right? And then we get to verse, uh, chapter 19, and we read this. Let me just read the whole chapter. So... Now Ahab, now he's the king, uh, told Jezebel that uh, she's his wife and she's a bit of a crazy lady. Uh, so Ahab the king tells Jezebel, the, his wife, everything uh, that Elijah had done, which is basically sort of killed all the prophets of Baal. She quite likes Baal and she quite likes her prophets and now they're kind of all being killed. So you follow me, I'm adding bits in here. Uh, Jezebel, everything Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel, being Jezebel, sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me be ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Curtains for Elijah. Elijah, quite understandably, was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, um, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. We were talking about wilderness last week. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread uh, baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again. And then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. You can probably be very familiar with this bit. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. they put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. 
And the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king of Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphath, from Hardword, Hardword, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I will reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12 pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah said. What have I done to you? So we'll come to that next week, maybe. Uh, so Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, poor cows, and uh, he burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah and become his servant. Okay, so lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff in there, and we're certainly not going to get it through it all this morning. Uh, it's certainly not if you want lunch, uh, but we might carry it on next week, but it depends what mood I'm in. Uh, anyway, here's Elijah. He's on this incredible high. He, he's, he's just sorted out and dealt this blow to all the prophets of Baal once and for all. And then the, literally the next minute, he's, he's scared to death, and he's running for his life. He's, he's, one minute he's up, and then the next minute, literally the next thing, he's very, very, very down. Which is our experience of life, if we're honest. You know, one minute you're doing great, things are going oh so smoothly, everything is tickety-boo, and then all of a sudden, just something happens and you just feel like you're flat on your face. You know, you, know, you kind of have a health scare, or, or someone that you love has a health scare, or, or you've got financial worries, or you're having difficulties at work, or whatever it might be. Something happens, literally out of the blue, that just causes us to fall flat on our faces. And this is what's happened to Elijah. But Elijah, clearly having listened to last week's podcast, um, he is, he, he know, his relationship with God is such... His experience of God is such that he knows that actually this is the time when things are all going pear-shaped. This is the very time that he needs to get out on his own, that he needs to get some time and he needs to get some space. He needs to get some silence and some solitude so that he can have his hurt healed and so that he can hear, most importantly, from God. And so in verse 3, what he does is he dismisses his servant. You know, his servant's the chap who's like kind of with him all the time. He's been through everything that he's been through. And he says, no, I'm going off on my own. Uh, And then in verse 4, he goes off into the wilderness, which is what we talked about last week. So uh, in verse 4, he went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed. This is where I could get the third Simon and Garfunkel song of the series in a kind of heaven holds a place for those who pray hey 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 uh, I'm going to educate the, this lot right on Simon and Garfunkel if it kills me somebody said actually most people do know Simon and Garfunkel it's just that they don't recognise Simon and Garfunkel when I sing it <laughs> which is pretty harsh actually um, Anyway, Elijah, the first thing he does is pray, and you're kind of like, that's good. But his prayer 
not so great. I mean, it's like one line long for a start. And it's, it's if, in effect, it's a suicide note. You know, uh, verse 4, he came to a broom bush, sat down under and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lies down under the bush and falls asleep. And what comes next is really, I think, what gives us a bit of a framework as to how we might deal with our own restlessness and anxiety and some of the doubts and the uncertainties and stuff that comes up when we're in a situation or feeling like we're in a situation like Elijah. And the first is this thing of rest. Elijah gets to the broom bush in verse 4, and yeah, the first thing he does is pray, but this prayer is a bit of a disaster, okay? And his prayer is a bit of a disaster, I think because he's like exhausted. It's all that he's got capacity for is this kind of slightly ropey, heartfelt, desperate, slightly self-pitying prayer. But then he's so exhausted, he just literally falls asleep. He just needs, this, the guy needs to just rest. And then in verse 5, this angel comes along to him and says, get up and eat. He looks around and there by his head, there was some bread baked over coals and a jar of water. He ate and he drank and he lies down again. All at once, the angel comes to him and says, get up. But he doesn't say, you know, get up and pray. He doesn't say, get up and fast. He doesn't say, you know, get up, you useless wretch, and read your Bible. He says, get up and eat. And then the angel comes back a second time. He says, get up and eat and drink. The angel doesn't sort of rebuke him for resting. He encourages it. He's like saying, Elijah, you need to rest. You need to take it easy. You need to eat. You need to look after yourself. You need to drink. Take care of yourself. You're you're knackered, mate. Which is a paraphrase. And you look at that and you're like, well, it doesn't feel very spiritual. But it's profoundly spiritual. And it's vitally important to the well-being of Elijah so that he can be in a place to both hear from God and to be healed by God. And so that's all he does for a few days, if not longer. He just sleeps and he eats and he drinks. And this thing of paying attention to how tired we might be, how we're doing physically, this is the starting place to hearing from God. Because it's kind of how we're wired. It's how we've been made. Because to be human means to be an integrated, holistic being. You don't have a body. You are one. Your body, your soul, your mind, your imagination, your personality. It's all you. And what this means is we can't separate our spiritual life from our personal life or from our physical life. It's all chocolate milkshake. It's all into one, and you can't tell where the chocolate starts and ends and the ice cream and the milk and everything. It's all one interconnected, wonderful being of humanness. So if we're feeling physically well and emotionally healthy, our spiritual lives tend to flow just that little bit more readily. But when we're overtired, when we're overwrought, when we just don't have the energy to do what's truly life-giving, And so things like spending time with God, things like worship and prayer and reading the Bible, things like silence and solitude, things like just being here on a Sunday, they start to feel kind of like hard work. They start to feel like a chore. It starts to feel like a duty. And instead, what happens is we kind of say to ourselves, I'm just so tired. You know what? All I've got the capacity for right now is 
some of my kind of go-to activities that I feel are going to soothe, soothe me. And so we feel like we've got the capacity to binge watch TV or we're going to find some way to just to kind of comfort eat or we're going to have another glass of wine or three or we're going to spend a whole load of money that we don't have um, shopping or we're going to just surf the internet looking at porn or whatever it is, that list of soothing, self-medicating, comfort things that we feel like all we've got the energy for because we're so exhausted is what we spend our time on. And the trouble with all of this is all of those things, they don't bring us life at all. And in fact, what they do is they just make us more tired and more depressed and kind of more empty. One of the greatest threats to our apprenticeship with Jesus is the exhaustion that comes from an over-busy life. And we looked at this a few weeks ago. We looked at hurry and busyness. So at times, just like here in our story, the best thing that we can do for our spiritual lives is just to go to bed early. It's just to go to bed early and get some sleep and switch the alarm off and have a lie in. Sometimes that's just the best thing we can do in our relationship with Jesus. Take a Sabbath. Just take some time to rest. Let your soul kind of catch up with your body. Rest. Eat. Sleep. Drink. Rest. Take time, Elijah. And you see when he kind of starts to get into this thing of silence and solitude, there's, there's very little prayer. You know, there's, there's a pretty ropey prayer. There's no kind of Bible reading. He's just sleeping and eating and drinking water day after day. And then kind of having rested, he starts to move into like the next phase. And the next phase is he waits. Elijah waits. Verse 8, strengthened by that food, he travels 40 days and 40 nights until he reaches Horeb, the mountain of God. Elijah goes on this 40-day journey to Mount Horeb, which is like another word for, another name for Mount Sinai. And if you know the story, Mount Sinai was a place of encounter with God. It was a special place. It was the place where Moses encountered God at the burning bush at the foot of Mount Sinai. It was the place where Israel encountered God as like this cloud over the mountain of thunder and lightning and, and fire and smoke. It's the place of the Ten Commandments. It's the place of the Torah. It's the place of the name of God. It's a place of revelation. It's a place of encounter. And Elijah goes on this journey day after day, literally week after week, towards the place of encounter because he's desperate to meet with God. So he goes on this 40-day journey and he's on foot, remember. He's like day after day after day in the desert. And he's just walking and walking and walking And all the time he's walking, he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. He's got nothing to do, no one to see, nothing to see. He's just walking towards God and waiting and hoping and longing to meet with God. And during this whole time, this like 40 days of waiting, does God speak to him during this time? No, it's not not a flipping word. You know, before he sets out, there's this get up and eat. But on the journey itself... Like, diddly squat, not a dicky bird. You know, there's no vision, there's no dream, there's no prophetic word from God, no encounter with God. There's absolutely nothing. God is absolutely silent. And Elijah is literally just putting one foot in front of the other, waiting and walking, waiting to hear the voice of God, step after step as he journeys towards Mount Horeb towards the mountain of God. 
Sometimes when we're in that season of waiting, God can feel incredibly distant. The heavens feel incredibly silent. We literally are just sometimes putting one foot in front of the other. The reality is, is that seeking God just takes time. There's something about us waiting on God. And then at the end of his journey, at the end of his waiting, Elijah, he arrives at Mount Horeb, verse 9. And there he goes into a cave and he spends the night. And then finally, he hears from God. Amazing. But if you know God, uh, God speaks to Elijah, but probably not in quite the way that Elijah had hoped that God would speak to him. So um, verse 9, the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? You know, Elijah doesn't get an answer, like, what the hell's going on with my life? Like, everyone's trying to kill me. Like, God, come up with something. What's next? Uh, He gets a question from God. What are you doing here, Elijah? And this kind of question, this kind of, what are you doing here? It's sort of, I think it's like, so what's going on with you, my friend? What are you you doing here? What's going on with you? Where are you? What's happening? What's going on in your heart? How are you feeling? What's, what's going on? This is, brings us, I think, Elijah into the next stage. And it's this thing of feeling. It's this thing of actually beginning to get in touch with some of that stuff that's popping up and rising to the surface. Because this is when Elijah lets it all out. All of the stuff that's been brewing in him since he's been legging it from Jezebel. All the stuff that's been brewing over this 40-day journey across the wilderness and in the desert. It all comes pouring out in this torrent of, I've been very zealous for the Lord, my God. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. This is kind of raw, bleh, of feeling and emotion that Elijah's... God, and it's kind of what happens when we finally hear that word from God. The question that God asks us is usually enough to unlock, if we're brave enough and if we're honest enough and real enough, to unlock all of that emotion and that stuff that we've been feeling. All of the doubt and the frustration, the disillusionment, the depression, the anger, the fear, the insecurity, it's all in here in Elijah's little kind of venting rant. He's rested and he's waited on God and he's walking through this wilderness. Elijah's now ready to just let it all spill out. He's ready to get in touch with what he's been feeling and all of the emotion. And he's willing, this is what's incredible I think about this, is he's willing and why it's such a fantastic model for us because he's willing to sit in all of this emotion and rage and he's willing to be honest not only with himself but he's willing to be honest with God. And let all of this feeling and emotion come out. This is incredible. I think it's incredibly important. We Christians, we don't like to do this kind of stuff. Disrespectful. Not only does he allow himself to feel all of the pain and the frustration and the disappointment and anger and all of it, he allows himself to feel it in the presence of God. And that's, I think, when the turning point comes. So, the Lord listens to all of this and doesn't say, hmm, I'm terribly offended. I'm the Lord God and I'm not sure you should speak to me like that. He says, actually, do you know what? Go, go out and just stand, stand out on the mountain, okay? Uh, and just go and stand out in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then you've got this 
thing of all kinds of stuffs going on. We don't know what that is. Is that real or is it a vision? I don't know what it is, right? But the, the, the essence of it is there's kind of earthquakes and there's like mountains being like split open and there's all kinds of stuff and, and God's not in any of all of those things. And then finally we get to this tiny, tiny whisper and God is there. Elijah recognizes the presence of God and he goes, okay. He puts his cloak over his head and his face and he goes and stands out at the mouth of the cave. He's now right in the presence of God. What does God do? He asks the flipping same question just again. What are you doing here, Elijah? And I I don't know, but my sense is that there's a big difference between the first what are you doing here God and the first reaction of Elijah to the second what are you doing here God and Elijah's response because now I think not only does Elijah have the courage to to feel all the emotions and frustrations and all the stuff that's been bubbling up but it's like he's got the courage to name it all really get in touch with it and be just like call it out for what it is in his heart in front of God as the presence of God goes by and it's so brutally honest. It, it just all comes out. Again, all the doubt and the frustration. This is basically him saying, do you know what, God? All of my work, all of my ministry, my mission, my calling, my vocation, it's all down the pan. He's got all these feelings of just not being good enough. The despair of it all. It all just comes pouring out. And it all comes pouring out into the presence of God. And it's like Elijah, uh, God's invitation to Elijah all along. This whole process has been come to me. Come to me. Bring all of your stuff. Bring all of your emotions. I know it's what's going on with you anyway, matey. Right? Before a word is even on your lips, I know it completely. Before you get up and you stand and you sit and you rise, I know exactly where you are, what you're doing. I know, says God, what's going on in you. Come and bring it to me. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Just bring all of it in brutal honesty. And come and just stand in the presence of God. Stand in the presence of the Almighty. And just stand there and let my presence just wash over you. And it is all here. The good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, look at verse 14. You know, it's good. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Yeah, he has. You know, he's basically saying, I've been passionate for you. I'm still passionate for you. I'm still here, aren't I? Like, I still believe in you. I'm about to have my life, like, taken away from me. But, like, you know, he's, he's good, faithful. And then it starts to get a little bit, you know, bad. You know, he's saying, it's, it's all gone a bit pear-shaped, God. You know, uh, my brief was to kind of uh, lift up your name, and that hasn't really worked because the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars, and they put all your prophets to death with the sword. I don't think I'm actually a very good prophet. I don't think I've done a very good job. Basically, my whole work, my life's work, my calling, my mandate is a bit of a disaster. No one's listening to me anymore. Uh, it's all been a complete waste of time. Why did I bother? I am not a very good prophet. And then it starts to get ugly because he starts feeling sorry for himself. You know, I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. I mean, it's not technically true. He's not actually the only one left. He feels like he's the only one left. He isn't the only one left. As we know, there's 7,000 um, people still sticking close to God. But there's something much deeper going on in here in Elijah. And it's, it's basically Elijah coming to the end of himself. This is Elijah saying, do you know what? Seriously, 
I've tried my best, but I'm done. I, I'm literally done. No one's listening to me. Nothing's working. I, I, I want out. I, 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 profit resignation. I hereby hand in my resignation as chief profit. I didn't sign up for this. Where's all of the abundance? You know, where's all the fullness of life and freedom and skipping in glades? It, this doesn't feel like any of that. So this is much harder than I ever thought it could be. Does any of that ring any bells for any of us ever? You know, can you imagine how absolutely crushed Elijah must have been to have got to this place? Whereby just, just actually willing to be that honest with himself and with God. And yet, to get there, to that place, and be that honest with God, and to be that honest with yourself, is incredibly important. Henry Nguyen, in The Way of the Heart, I think he, I personally think he uh, eloquently describes what is actually happening to us, what actually happens to us when we meet with God in silence and solitude. Just to warn you, it's not all fluffy bunnies and warm fuzzies. Okay, This is what he says. He says, solitude is not a private therapeutic place. And, and what I think he means by that, this is me, not him. What I think he means by that is that um, silence and solitude aren't just kind of mindfulness with a bit of Jesus tagged on like, to the side. Silence and solitude in the presence of God is a completely and utterly different thing from mindfulness. Anyway, he goes on. This is him, not me. He says, rather, the place of silence and solitude is the place of conversion. The place where the old self dies and the new self is born. In silence and solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. No friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract. Just me. Naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken. Nothing. And it's this nothingness, he goes on, that I have to face in my solitude. And nothing is so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends and my work and my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I'm worth something. But that's not all. As soon as I decide to stay in my solitude, confusing ideas, disturbing images, wild fantasies and weird associations jump about in my mind like monkeys in a banana tree. Anger and greed begin to show their ugly faces. I give long, hostile speeches to my enemies and dream lustful dreams in which I am wealthy, influential, and very attractive. Or poor, ugly, and in need of immediate consolation. Thus, I try again to run from the dark abyss of my nothingness and restore my full self in all its vainglory. The wisdom of the desert, I told you it wasn't warm fuzzies. The wisdom of the desert is that the confrontation with my own frightening nothingness forces us to surrender ourselves totally and unconditionally to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you, we looked at this on our Tuesday group on uh, the other night. Um, some of you, like our Tuesday group, are kind of, um, when we looked at this guy, I'm never going near silence and solitude. Like, I knew it. Like, I knew there was a reason I don't want to sit still, right? Like, who wants that? You know, some of you are like, Neil, if you're going for inspiration, you lost me at the dark abyss of my nothingness. Yeah, um, I get that. 
And it is pretty, it's pretty brutal, it's pretty full on. Um, but it's, I think it's incredibly honest. And I think it's incredibly important for us to think about this and engage with it. Because the reality for us as followers of Jesus is that the place of silence and solitude is a place of encounter with the living God. Our place of silence and solitude is us being on Mount Horeb with the living God, in the presence of the living God. And trust me, when we are in the presence of the living God, that is definitely a place of salvation and redemption and also transformation and change. And it can get pretty intense. Jesus and the cross serves as a good model. So, understandably, even like Jesus and the cross in Gethsemane, we try to avoid it. We, 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 we please take this cup away from me. We fill our lives with noise so we don't have to go there, so that we don't have to deal with it, so that we don't have to feel any of it, much less have to face the emotion of it all and the reality of it all and do it in the presence of God and ourselves. Here's the thing. All of that stuff, all of those emotions, all of those feelings, all that uncertainty and insecurity that we have, all of the doubt that we have about God and our faith and what the heck is happening to our lives and the fact that the wheels are falling off, blah, 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 blah. All of that stuff is actually happening in our lives already. It's there. It's not going anywhere. You know, we can try to ignore it. We can pretend that it's not there. You know, we can put on our best faces and look pretty, you know, which is what explains our love affair with social media and the love affair that we have of presenting an image to the world that we are somebody completely different to the person that we know that we actually are in our hearts in the hope, the desperate hope, that somehow we will magically transform into that person. We can distract ourselves into oblivion trying to dodge it all, but it is still all there under the surface. And for many of us, it's literally just, literally just under the surface. It's not even very far down. And if we don't deal with the stuff in a healthy way, it will leak out in a number of unhealthy ways. Like, trust me, I, I know. Um, ask Kate, and she will wax lyrical on the ways in which my stuff leaks out in unhealthy ways. You know, it will leak out in our lives. It will leak out in our relationships. It will sabotage trust and marriage and community and your reputation. It will leak out in your sexuality. It will leak out in your money. It will leak out in your sense of humor. No matter how tr- hard I try to justify the fact, I am sarcastic just because I'm broken and it leaks out. So I think my humor is incredibly clever and witty. It's just, it's just brokenness. And I've got to deal with it. We have to deal with this stuff. And the question is, is there a safe place to deal with it all? And the answer is Yes. And it is more than anything in and through intentional time alone in the quiet with ourselves and with God. It's us being still and quiet in the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's us being still and quiet in the presence of Jesus Christ, whose death and voluntary sacrifice on the cross is what makes all of this possible. The fact that we can bring all of this stuff out and bring it to a place of transformation and change is all because of what Jesus did on the cross. 
And so what we do is we find a way to settle ourselves and still and quiet ourselves and slowly but surely unpack the suitcases of our baggage and take it all out, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and just stick it all out on the table in front of ourselves and in the presence of the Lord Almighty. And it's in that process that we begin to experience freedom. And we have to do this if we want to encounter God. This is the defining moment for Elijah. It's in this act, this brutal honesty that's key to what comes next, that we might get onto next week, um, which is hearing God's voice and being transformed. It's what happens in the rest of the chapter. See, for Elijah, God, he knows God. His relationship with God is phenomenal. He knows that God is not someone to run from. He knows that God is someone to run to. God is the safe place to speak out all of the stuff that is going on under the surface of our lives, in our hearts and in our minds. And we can pretend that it's just not there. We can pretend, I don't have any doubt. My faith is rock solid. My faith has never been shaken. It's just not true. And God knows that it's not true. So to kind of pretend that it's true is just deluding ourselves and one another. We all have doubts. We're all uncertain about what we think about our faith. That's okay. Like, it's okay. Because we bring that place and that stuff out into the open in our relationship with God and in the presence of God. And that's when the healing comes. The trouble for us is we look at this kind of thing and we know that the outcome is transformation. And the reality is most of us just want to skip to the good bit. We want to cut to the chase. You know, we want to go straight to transformed. We want to go straight to freedom. We want to go straight to abundant, abundant life. Uh, we just want to hear from God. We want to be miraculously transformed, you know, in a twinkling of an eye. We're not so keen massively on the process of how God allows us to get there. We're not massively keen on resting. We are properly not keen on waiting. We're not that keen on feeling. We're getting in touch with our feelings. We're not that keen on naming any of it. But that's when the freedom that God so longs to give us comes. You know, just this week, as I've been sat in silence and solitude, it's exposed a lot of kind of ugly stuff in my heart, I discovered. Um, even, you know, in the midst of all of the silence and solitude. As I've sat, you know, 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, just the stuff that's kind of come up, and oh, gosh, who knew? Huh, who knew? And for me, getting in touch with some of that stuff and then naming it, even though I know what it is and I recognize it, and I'm like, yeah, that's true, even though I'm feeling it inside, actually naming it and saying it out loud is like properly scary. It's something really weird. It's like it sticks in your throat. You, you can feel it inside, but it's like saying it out loud just in the presence of God. It's like properly hard work. It feels really painful. But that's the moment that is the beginning of our healing as we meet with God in the midst of our pain. Now, I don't know where you're all at. Maybe you've had the best week of your life. You're on cloud nine, you know, which is fantastic. That's brilliant. I'm so happy for you. Maybe your heart is just filled with joy and delight and wonder and gratitude, which is amazing. So when we worship, you know, sing, sing loud, go for it. Um, 
maybe you're coming from the week or few weeks or months or few months that have felt like they've been like a living hell for you and you're racked by doubt. You know, maybe you're just so low. Something's happened and you're just low and you just don't even know if you want to kind of move forward anymore. And this is an invitation for you to come and meet God in, your, in the midst of your pain, to bring it all out before him. And most of us, the truth is, we run as fast as we possibly can from emotional pain. We run as fast as we possibly can from emotional pain to distraction. But the way of Jesus, not only as we see from the life of Elijah, but as we also see from Jesus, is to run to that place and meet God there. And in that moment of brutal honesty to experience the healing touch of the God who made you. What are you doing here? Ask yourself that question. Because if we have the courage to step into that place and to trust God and to move through the place of pain and fear onto the other side, there's a whole new level of freedom, of joy, of abundance, of peace. And that's waiting for us in Christ Jesus. Okay? Nor to politely. Why don't you stand if we can have the band back?